Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. Dr. Kevin Gilmartin is considered the leading behavioral scientist specializing in mental and emotional health for law enforcement. In this episode, he offers sound and logical advice for lawmen and women to maintain well-being in a profession that often destroys it. Dr. Gilmartin spent his youth around police officers. We have always had uh, a good number of police officers in my family. Uh, it just, uh, you know, an Irish Catholic second-generation immigrant family, I think police work was just um, in large proportion. So I've always been around cops, and it always attracted me. So I was able to combine a law enforcement career with a degree in psychology, and I'm very happy that I was able to do that. Dr. Gil Martin's early career began developing criminal profiles. He expanded on that platform to better understand the biological effects of the policing lifestyle on cops. Actually, merged both of them pretty early. My my first position was with the Department of Justice under the old Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which was interviewing convicted felons uh, who had uh, a violent conviction. So, sort of some of the precursors to what ended up being the the criminal profiling studies that happened, you know, ten years later. But uh, I came to the Sheriff's Department in Tucson when they had a change of administrations and was somewhat recruited to come on over and to take over their behavioral sciences unit, and uh, I did, and I was very happy. It was, a, it was a good career decision for me. My early years were shaped by Dr. Harold Russell, who was one of the first police psychologists in the U.S. He just happened to live here in Tucson. Uh, he wrote the book, Understanding Human Behavior for Effective Police Work, and we both just started looking at what happens to the men and women who enter law enforcement. What happens over the course of that journey, over the course of their lifetime? Um, what, what I consider myself somewhat pretty blessed because I was able to get into this field very early in the 1970s. Actually, some of my first police interviews were in 1970 and met some really wonderful men and women in law enforcement, but have been able to track those men and women now 50 years later. So when I speak about police stress, I'm not just talking about the effects of the next 18 or 20 months in somebody's life. I'm looking at them over the course of the next 50 years of their life. And why do our police officers have high rates of suicide? And, and why do they tend to die prematurely of diseases that are preventable and are directly related to being a police officer? One of the things that, that I noticed in watching the police mental health movement over the last decades is that we get one thing right. We're starting to get one thing right, and that's our response to trauma. 
traumatic events. I, I think we're getting that wired in correctly with uh, peer support officers and critical incidents trustee briefing. We're getting that right. But in the totality of mental health services to police, I think we're getting it wrong. And I think the reason that we don't answer the question correctly is because we're not asking the right question. We're, we're trying to take a, a clinical mental health model that works out in the general population, and we're trying to apply it to law enforcement professionals, and I don't think it fits. I, I think we need to look at this somewhat differently. And when I conceptualize what happens to somebody in law enforcement, I try, try to tie it back to what's unique about law enforcement. When, when you look at people who, who like law enforcement, they're early in their career. There are people who actually like that state of involvement in operations. They, they like working the streets. They like working cases. They're, they're good investigators. They're good street cops. Well, that's not a, an, an intellectual experience. That's a biophysiological experience. They, they like that state of when their body goes into an elevated state of alertness. Their senses are elevated. Their peripheral vision is widened. And it's, it's like people who like competition in sports. They, they, there's game day athletes and there's practice athletes. Well, law enforcement people are kind of game day athletes. When they show up to do their job, they're in this heightened level of alertness. But when you look at that heightened level of alertness, we can call it officer safety, street survival. I, I call it hypervigilance because what it is, it's the biological engagement of the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. It's the adrenal cortical stress response. It's what the cop needs in order to do his or her job safely. The dispatcher needs the exact same response. But that whole physiological elevation that gets experienced on duty by the law enforcement officer, when they get off duty, has the opposite physiological effect. So the officer goes from a sympathetic autonomic nervous system response, they immediately drop into a parasympathetic state, which is a depressed type state. They're lethargic, they're detached, they're isolated. And without appropriate training, the cop thinks they're just tired. We need to educate them to know, no, that's a unique occupationally induced physiological state, that parasympathetic state. But in that state, several things are happening. The, the, the obvious thing that's happening is the officer becomes sedentary. They pull back from social engagements. They pull back from conversations. There's this general fatigued type state. So they become very sedentary in their lifestyle. But what's even more damaging is when you produce adrenaline in someone's life, what's immediately happening is that adrenal cortical response impacts the liver and blood glucose is released. That's the energy the cop feels out in the field when they're doing their job. It's that elevated blood glucose. But what the body's doing is it's releasing insulin, which grabs a bunch of that blood glucose and it infuses it in the fat cells, particularly around the abdominal area. It infuses them through the cell walls in the glucose receptor. So the first indication that a cop is having difficulties is the waist size of the police officer will slightly increase. And we all joke about this. The 
175-pound cop in the academy is now the 185-pound cop. And we joke about donuts. But it's, it's not a joking matter because what that officer is doing is they're entering a state of insulin resistance. They're infusing glucose into the fat cell. And, and that's, that's the body's way of protecting it for, for the stress response. It's, it's having sort of uh, resources in reserve. It would be like when you're getting ready to go out into the field, you'll carry an extra magazine with you for your weapon. Well, the body's storing this glucose. It, it can only do that for about six, seven, maybe eight years. Then the glucose receptor shuts down, and now the blood glucose is no longer infused into the cell wall, through the cell wall, into the lipid cell, the fat cell. It remains in the bloodstream of the officer. Now we start having glucose levels elevate. And our good operational police officer is now well within a decade on their way to type 2 diabetes, heart disease, and stroke, and at the same time experiencing a daily depression. It's almost like a, a roller coaster, if you picture a roller coaster. Biophysiologically on duty, the cop is alert, alive, quick thinking, energized, they can make split-second decisions. When they leave that biological state, they're detached, they're isolated, they're apathetic. They move into basically a clinical depression. But we have not been educating our police officers on the biology that officer safety causes. We bring in a, we bring in counselors and we bring in therapists, and they'll talk about how the cop feels, which is very important. I'm not diminishing that, but the simplest solution to this dynamic is we have to address these biological swings each day the cop goes through, and the research is overwhelmingly clear. You know, we do know, for example, that. Um, about 40% of America's police are obese. Well, they're not obese because they're eating donuts. They're obese because they're practicing officer safety, infusing glucose into the fat cell. Then they become sedentary after work each day. Well, that's very easy to fix. It's very easy to fix. The Center for Disease Control says about 22 minutes a day of moderate exercise would reduce type 2 diabetes in this population between 60 and 70 percent. But you very rarely find police departments that mandate daily exercise for police. They very rarely mandate it. They'll put all these resources into, into getting cops in great shape at the police academy. Then they graduate. Then five years later, this young man or young woman doesn't even physically look like what they looked like you know, 10 years previously. There's a loss of muscle tone, there's a loss of aerobic capacity, and there's an overwhelmingly depressive atmosphere in their personal life. Or they still energize and engage when they go back into the biology of their occupation of being a cop. And once people become cops, they love being cops. You'll, you'll hear old-timers who have gotten disgusted with something going on at their agency and they quit. Then two years later, they reapply for the job. And when you ask them why they're coming back to work, they'll always say, well, this kind of work gets in your blood. Well, it really does, because the cop likes that elevated physiological state of policing. The, the difference between a cop and a firefighter is the firefighter only has to go into that state after the alarm goes and they're making a run for service. The cop has to stay in that state for the entire duration.
they're very good operators. And as a matter of fact, our best cops are the ones that are highest risk for this phenomena because they're the guys who want to be on the SWAT team and they want to be the motor officer and the canine officer and work undercover. They're the ones that have to be able to operate in these extreme biological states. But they're the ones we're setting up for the depressive-like state every day off-duty. And something as simple as a mandated exercise period every day brings them out of that depressive-type state and brings them back into the middle so they can interact with their family, so they can maintain their hobbies and interests. And they can also prevent disease processes that bring them down in their 50s and 60s. Now, this one study found cops die about 12 years prematurely. Another study found it was 19 years prematurely. I, I don't know what the specific number would be, but I think we can all agree that, that cops die prematurely. And they die prematurely from diseases that are directly related to this elevated level of alertness they must remain in for the entire duration of their operational career. And we can prevent it, by one, by just looking at the impact of treating depression through cardio events. Duke University did a study with depressed patients. Half the patients were treated traditionally with psychotropic medication. The other half of the patients were placed on treadmills for 20 minutes a day of brisk walking. The, the entire group of patients had been clinically diagnosed as depressed. At the end of a four-month follow-up, both groups treated their depression equally. So walking on a treadmill for 20 minutes a day showed no difference than taking the antidepressant medication. But what we'll do and how we address this in the United States is we'll hire psychologists, and I'm one of those, so I'm, I'm not berating that, and we'll let them be available to talk to the cops. Well, that's good for traumatic events, but we would get just as much beneficial for the effect for the, for the depression issues if we had cops daily finishing each shift getting on an elliptical, doing a structured CrossFit program, going out for a run. And we would lift that depressive state before we send the person back to his or her family. And we would save lots of heartache if we did that. I, I've had police officers in my office at 4 o'clock in the afternoon that looked fine. And I get a call at 10 o'clock at night that the officer's taken their life. And years early in my career, I would try to understand what psychological aspect did I miss. Then all of a sudden, you start realizing perhaps this is a biological state. One of the issues that people talk about is the stigma of seeking out psychological assistance. Well, that would be good if, in fact, the police officers who took their life had not already sought out psychological treatment, because many of them have. Many are in treatment. So what we have to start looking at is the effectiveness of the treatments that we're providing. And the simplest solution to me, to at least, it, there's nothing wrong with it. Nobody, nobody suffers if a cop doesn't become obese. And nobody suffers if a cop is physically fit. And we can generate that by finishing each shift with exercise. The second thing that we miss, besides only thinking of mental health in psychological terms and not thinking of it in, in biological terms. You know, I'll go to a conference on police stress 
and there'll be nobody represented from the physical fitness community there. There'll all be psychologists and therapists. And I'm thinking, well, where are the CrossFit trainers? Where are the, uh, the aerobics folks here for cops? But the other thing that we miss profoundly in the U.S. is teaching sleep hygiene to our cops. We know that in order to do, to perform in critical events, you have to average seven to eight hours of sleep. The research is straightforward on that. It's been there for 50 years. But we also know that 83% of police officers in the U.S. report inadequate sleep. When you take police officers and you take factory workers and you put them in reaction time studies, police officers make 600% more reaction time errors and judgment errors than civilians do strictly because of sleep deprivation. So when someone's awake for 24 consecutive hours, their reaction time and their judgment is identical to a blood alcohol level of 0.10. 18 hours of sustained wakefulness is 0.08 in terms of judgment and reaction time. So, so as I look at events where a police officer maybe made a mistake in judgment, we immediately want to condemn that police officer, but we never want to look back at what did his or her agency do in providing them solid scientific-based empirical evidence on the need for sleep, and how much sleep hygiene training did we give to our police officers and their support systems, their families. So when I look at the whole mental health program as we're doing it in the U.S., the two big glaring deficiencies to me are the maintenance of fitness as a way to treat depression and the deficiency in sleep hygiene so we don't get these suboptimal decisions by police in the field. We can have all the psychologists and therapists, which we need, helping them with trauma, but it's the, the capacity to perform in these really highly stressful situations. And that, that's, a, we're having to look at the physical dimensions and we're not. So that's, what, when I deal with cops and do seminars on emotional survival, I want the cops to appreciate that they have to take as much responsibility for their emotional survival as they do for their street survival. And the better the operator you are in the field, the more you're at risk to the syndrome that I'm talking about, that is dropping into the depressed state each day after work. And it's in that depressed state that you have such suffering in, in the lives of our police officers, unnecessary divorces and, and loss of relationships with their children. And then years later, having cops die of diseases in their 50s that in all likelihood in the general population they wouldn't be experiencing until their 80s. So we rob cops of, of, of a, a third of their life at the end, of the quality of their life. So that when I look at this overall mental health, that, that's the approach I take with our cops. Dr. Gilmartin compares the similarities of police work to high-pressure sports performance. But, but you're an athlete, and you've performed in highly, highly stressful situations, um, you know, not just as, as an undercover agent, but you're performing these agents as, as a collegiate athlete, as, as a wide receiver. And, you know, there's a big difference between catching a pass in your backyard and catching a pass in, in the fourth quarter of a game when you have to catch the pass. Uh, I'm a team roper, and I've team roped for many, many years. And I have a roping arena at my house. My buddies will come over and we'll load up the steers, 
all day long. You don't miss a steer. But then we'll all walk out and we'll drop 10 or 20 bucks on top of a barrel. Now there's 10 guys there roping. Now there's, now there's 200 bucks sitting on the top of that barrel. Now that's an entirely different performance challenge. It's the same horse, it's the same cattle, it's the same rope, but it's an entirely different event. When a cop steps out of a patrol car and they're walking up to the, to the violator vehicle to make contact, they're the exact same as the place kicker walking up to, to the tee. I mean, they, they have to have their mind in the game. And some people love perform. They love that kind of competition, which is great. They make wonderful cops. But going up into that state is what causes the destruction in their personal life. And, and to me, the, the big heartbreak of policing is to watch the destruction in the lives of our police officers because we don't give them some very simple information. We, we give them very complex information, and we talk about a lot of theoretical concepts, but if we just give them some basic, concrete, specific recommendations, they can, they can maintain their life and, and live rich, full lives. And that's sort of my passion and what, why I keep doing what I'm doing. What has once been seen can never be unseen. I asked Dr. Gilmartin to discuss the cumulative effects of repeated negative police experiences. Not just by sitting down and doing disengaging, 
but they re-engage in another chapter of their life. So they have balanced life experience. Social isolation is a, is a, is a terrible situation when the only things that are bouncing around inside your head are traumatic events. And, and I, I believe that we're, we're getting the PTSD stuff understood in policing. But there's so much more to wellness for our cops than strictly the PTSD. But we are moving in the right direction with the PTSD treatment, far, far more than we were a decade ago. But I think these other areas were, were, were missing. I asked Dr. Gilmartin his opinions on the epidemic number of police suicides. Are the increased numbers new to the profession, or have they always been there and are now only being more openly reported? You know, I don't have an answer to that. Uh, I, I do know that it's far too high. Now, we're, we're, we're clearly more aware of it now than we previously were. But I think for the last 20 years, the era of covering up police suicides has been over with. I, I, for the most part, I think it's been over with. When you look at all the resources that are being put into mental health for police, we, you talk about the, the screening of police officers prior to being employed, the availability of employee assistance programs, the number of chaplains and psychologists and counselors that are readily available for, for the law enforcement community, we should have had a significant reduction in suicides. We should, we should have been able to eradicate it. But I, I think we're solving the wrong problem because, because and, I, and as I said earlier, I don't believe that these suicides, a significant percentage of them, are because of psychological impairment. I think a big percentage of them are because of chronic depression that's brought on by a physical state. Or the depression's there psychologically, but we cause the depression in police officers. Officer safety causes depression. Um, officer safety driven by adrenaline, which will make the cop fat. And these are, we have to start looking at these issues from a more preventative approach. When, when I look at someone who I've known for 50 years, known, known them in their 20s, and now they're in their 70s, and I look at them, and I look at the, the, the damage that a police career has done to that man or that woman, health-wise and socially, they're preventable. And I know a lot of cops who are retired, whose lives are working really well, but they paid a huge price for it. I was doing a seminar not too long ago, and a cop walked up to me, and he had, had a stack of my books, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. And he said, Dr. Gilmartin, would you do me the honor of signing these for me? I said, be my honor. Who can I make them out to? And he says to my ex-wives, I said, your ex-wives? He goes, yeah, I got three of them. I refer to them as P1, P2, and P3 for plaintiff one, plaintiff two, and plaintiff three because they're always suing me. And I jokingly said, they're going to get a class action suit against you. And I thought he was being lighthearted, but he wasn't. I said, you're serious. You want me to sign books for your ex-wives? He goes, yes. I said, I've, I've never been asked that before. He goes, I just want to say I'm sorry. I want them to know that the divorces were 100% my fault. And I want them to go forward with their life and be happy. This is my way of just apologizing to them to give them something to read. Now, this raises...
insurance for suicide. It strikes me as like a cop who's checking out. So I signed the books, and, and there's a fourth book. I thought, you got a fourth book here. Who's that for? And he goes, it's, it's, it's for my wife now. I brought, I brought my wife. And so I said, oh, number four, huh? And he goes, no, number one. This is my first marriage that I'm an active participant with. He goes, I have to tell you something, Dr. Joe Martin. I learned the lessons of how to live my life as a police officer, but they were hard-learned lessons. He says, it's taken me 20 years to learn these lessons. Why the hell can't we speed up the learning curve for the young cops so they don't have to go and suffer in their personal lives the way we have? I had three good women come into my life, agree to be my life partner, and started families, and I screwed it up three times because I did not know what police work was doing to me. I did not know about that depression off-duty, the enhanced alcohol abuse off-duty, the disengagement from life off-duty. Because I understand those things now, and I do not live my life the way I used to live my life. He goes, but it was a hell of a learning curve. Why can't we accelerate it and teach these cops early and often so they don't have to pay the price? I said, hey, amen, brother. You're, you're speaking to the choir. That's what the class is about. And... I think the one thing that I, troubles me the most is watching cops replicate er, errors that we can prevent. We would not do that with officer safety. We get a cop who approaches a vehicle incorrectly and a tragedy occurs. We study that and then we, we teach the cops, you don't approach a vehicle this way. Here's how you search for it. Here's, here's an officer safety update. We do it all, we do the right thing when we're teaching street survival but we just ignore emotional survival. We joke about that cop gaining 20 pounds. We joke about the cop sleeping three, four hours a night. Then we, we deal with the tragedies afterwards. We deal with the suicides. And then we, we, we keep saying, well, there must have been something wrong with old Joe. He, he must have hidden. He must have had some conflict in his life. And I always think, no, he was just living his life the way a cop lives his or her life. Taken to the end physically every day, and then having the psychological consequences because of that. So, you know, when you're asking, has the suicide issue changed? I think, if anything, it's become worse because there's more pressure on our cops now than there ever has been. Every idiot on earth has a cell phone. They jam in the cop's face. The cops wearing a body cam constantly. The media has decided that every cop is a brutal racist, and that's understood, and that's the starting point for these discussions. And nobody ever wants to step back and defend the cops. And many times, police executives are more than happy after a controversial event just to throw their cop under the bus for their own political you know, salvation. And, and the profession doesn't move forward. And it's very simple to, to implement some of these changes. They're not costly. Uh, having a couple of treadmills and a fitness coordinator is a pretty cheap investment if we're going to prevent suicides and save police marriages. As cops, do we have a predisposition for risk, or do we eventually become addicted to it? People who like law enforcement like being in that hyper-vigilant state that as I described earlier. Now, does that exist prior to their selecting police work? I'll bet in some people it does, but I'm always amazed why some people enter law enforcement. You know, a, great, a great deal of uh, 
my early years in policing was doing pre-employment psychological evaluations. And I would always ask the person, why did you apply for this job? And then I would, I would follow up many times with this officer a few years later. But I was always amazed at someone who was coming down the street, one good cop I knew in Tucson. He worked as a miner down by Green Valley, south of Tucson, the Copper Mines. And he was coming down the road, and he blew out a tire on the road in front of the department. And he walked in to use the telephone at the department, and he saw that they were hiring. And he just put his name on the list, and he got hired, went to the academy. He had no inclination to be a police officer. He was very happy being a welder at the mines. And he'd had a, a, a wonderfully successful police career. But if his tire had not blown out, he never would have become a cop. But he was a great cop. But once you enter into that biophysiological state, many people like it. You know, many, many people like sports because they like the competition of the sport. They, 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 they like all the, the sensory processes of, you know, running out on the football field and smelling the grass that's been cut. They're, they're really getting in the biology of, uh, of game mode. Um, and they, they like that. And that, that's not a bad thing. We want cops who can function in stressful and risk-based situations because it's the environment we put cops into is not normal. People don't dial 911 because things are normal. They dial 911 because things are not normal, something the person can't handle on their own, and they need these professionals, these first responders to come in. And the, the first responder comes in and handles the situation. And again, the difference between cops and firefighters is that cops have to remain in that elevated level of alertness the entire duration of the shift. The firefighter only has to be in that state when they're doing a run. The rest of the time, they're back at the firehouse. You know, they're, they're eating meals as normal people do, and they're exercising, and they're, they're cognizant of their sleep patterning. Um, law enforcement could do very well to look at what, what firefighters do, because they're far more humane in terms of the, the psychology of what we're speaking about right now. And their, their profession's been far advanced to law enforcement. It's a lot easier to manage it. But we, we could do, with a little bit of resources, we could reap huge benefits in helping law enforcement. Is there a formula for surviving a violent or traumatic situation? I think that agencies have an obligation to inoculate their officers prior to putting them into those types of situations. By, by having training where we have peers come in and speak and say, you know, when I was in my shooting, this happened and this happened and that happened to me. And having some, some veterans get up there and, and speak about it. So, so we dispel this myth of denial. Because, you know, as long as the cop thinks, well, if I get in a shooting, I'm not supposed to feel anything, then the reality sit and the cop does feel things. They're, they're going to feel like, well, I can't talk about this. I'm not, there must be some kind of inherent psychological weakness that I'm experiencing. I think if the cop knows right up front that it's pretty normal after the event to have a certain series of, of uh, emotions and symptoms. And if they know that going into the event, and, and they know what they have to do to perform in the event, that we know about the reaction time, we know about the, the, um, the, the, the demands. I've, I've had many, many police officers immediately after, for example, shootings tell me, you know, 
training took over. You know, I, the, the guy brought his gun out, and before I knew it, it, it was I, my weapon was out. I I have to tell you, I have no conscious memory of it. It was just it was on, on autopilot at that particular point, and letting the officer know that that's a normal response, and then immediately after the traumatic event, having management protocols that are that are designed to assist the officer. And we've made huge progress in this. You know, we get peers out there. We get chaplains and psychologists out there. We do debriefings. And we don't just do it once. We follow up with it on anniversaries and on events. So the cop knows that these are going to be difficult things that are, that are never going to disappear. And 20 years later, that cop is still going to remember that traumatic event. But the difference is they control the emotional reaction. The emotional reaction doesn't control them. And you know, I, I can remember one time being out at the range here in Tucson, and it was a nighttime shoot um, in the summer. We were going out to the range, and everyone was going to fire at night. Very safe environment, just um, firing on the range. And just like happens in the summer in the desert, a monsoon hits, and it's pouring rain. The rain comes down, and everybody steps under the Ramada to stay dry. And an officer goes up and he grabs me and he's in a full-blown panic attack. He's hyperventilating, he's crying, and I said, what's wrong? And so I take him back to my car off the firing range. And it had been the first time in his life he had experienced the smell, the extended smell of, of gunpowder, the nitrates in the air, with rain, and it immediately triggered a full-blown, intrusive, emotional flashback to some very traumatic experiences he had 15 years earlier in Vietnam that he had never dealt with, never even thought about. But the, 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 the olfactory sense of smell from the gunpowder with the rainfall was uh, that unique combination, and he was in this full-blown, intense response. And once it went through, and he understood that that's probably going to, uh, he, that trigger might be there for a while. And we, we got him into some therapy for, you know, rapid eye movement, desensitization, and some things. But, but you know, understanding these triggers can come off, who knows? You, 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 you don't always know what trigger is going to bring it out. But if we educate folks to that, that they'll have services for them, we, we stop a lot of human suffering. And I, I, I am optimistic. I think we're doing the right thing with trauma. I think we're terrible with prevention of premature death and bad decision-making in the field because we're, we're ignoring that sleep cycle, which also feeds into PTSD, by the way. We, 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 stop, we ignore the whole biology of this in our cops. What role does God, faith, or spirituality play in maintaining a healthy mindset? on, on uh, spirituality and faith in, um, in police work, classic study, found that uh, the majority, the statistical majority of people who enter law enforcement come from a background that attended church in their childhood. Yet within the first decade of policing, 50% of our police officers have stopped attending church. So when you start looking at the benefits of, of church, or a spiritual dimension. Some people have it belonging to a congregation. Some people have it uh, when they go out 
know several things about going to church. People who go to church are statistically more likely to play on a sports team. They're statistically more likely to have someone over to their home for dinner. They're statistically more likely to volunteer at their children's school. So the, the, con the whole constellation of events with church isn't just spiritual. It's also congregational, where people interact with people. They, they, they get to meet people. And many times they get to meet people, and they don't have to stay in their police role. They get to be in the role of being a co-worshipper, which enhances their foundation of their, of their sense of self. So they add another, another dimension of resiliency to their life. Dr. Gilmartin promotes time away from the job and the development of interests outside of Copland as critical to long-term health. you got to have some time off from work. And when I, I bounce back and forth between the United States and Australia and Canada. I sort of spend a third of my life going between these countries, the various agencies. When I go down to Australia, I think they're doing some things in Australia that are light years ahead of what we do in the United States, light years ahead. The one thing that they do so much better in Australia is they give their cops time off. The cop starts with nine weeks vacation. The cops have sabbatical programs. What they opt to choose, it, they can work for four years and they get every fifth year off with full pay. Every, you know, they take home about 20% less each year, and they put it in escrow, and it self-funds the fifth year off. During that year, they travel. They unwind. They, they recharge their batteries. They, they, they do what they're going to do. In the United States, we start with two weeks vacation, and many cops work at overtime. They'll work second jobs. So we don't give our cops enough time off, and we actually don't pay them enough. So they're working all these excessive hours, which adds to the sleep deprivation, the lack of exercise, and the social isolation. So, I, so when you talk about church, I would talk about church and playing golf and lifting weights and riding mountain bikes and diversifying the base of that, of that officer, keeping them as well-rounded as we can. Dr. Gilmartin's book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, is a bestseller and was designed to offer practical advice for lawmen. That was sort of our goal in writing the book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement. We, we wanted to look at the cops who made it. And I, I, as I mentioned, we call them the emotional survivors. These are guys who had careers that were exemplary. They, they had tough times. They, they had been through traumatic events. Yet their life worked. And I went out and interviewed them, and I, I would, I, I would just pick their brains, and uh, and I was comparing them to the guys I would call emotional victims, guys who started the career healthy, functional, and happy, and within 15 years were bitter and angry and hated everybody and couldn't wait until they retired. And I wanted to look at the, the differences between those two populations. And the guys we dubbed emotional survivors, there were some very specific things they did. And the first thing that was very clearly delineated is they had, they managed time well. They, when they got off work each day, they had an event that was already planned, and they went and did it. 
and this is time management with their families. They had specific written goals and objectives. Um, I like to run, and I'm, I'm in a hotel not long ago, and I'm watching this weightlifter come in. This, is, this guy has biceps the size of my shoulders, and I'm running on the treadmill, and I'm watching him, and he does like 20 reps with this, this huge amount of weight. I couldn't even lift one of the plates, and he has tons of them on, on the bar, and he's doing these, these reps. But after he finishes every routine, he goes over and he writes it down in this little log book that he's keeping. And I watch him for an hour lifting, and after each, each series and each set of reps, he would go over and he'd make notation that he accomplished it. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I don't value lifting heavy objects. If you have something heavy to lift, Get a forklift, okay? But he obviously values that. He, he likes he, strong, robust fellow. But he's rewarding himself because when he walked into that gym, he had a specific goal, and he accomplished that specific goal. Now, I'm sure he's looking at me running on the treadmill, and he's probably thinking, you know, what's this geriatric gerbil here trying to accomplish on that treadmill? He's getting nowhere. But the second I got my mileage hit on the treadmill, I jumped off and made notation in my running log that had my goal for the mileage for that day down, and I accomplished it. Having specific, tangible goals that you share with your loved ones is very important. So all of our survivors had that. They, they were Little League coaches, and they were, they were church members, and they, they were hunters. They had, they had a life outside of police work. The second thing that all of our survivors had is they inherently seemed to understand that exercise alleviated stress. They knew that. Nobody taught them that. By accident, they just knew it. And you would ask them, you'd say, what's the best part of your exercise? And they would say, when it's done. They'd say, I still think the chief is an idiot after I'm done exercising. I just don't think about him after I'm done exercising. I feel relaxed. I, I, I feel better. And that's that whole endorphin event of after exercise, what helped normalize the, the, the physiology. So they had time management, and they had an inherent daily physical activity as a release. They were aware of sleep and nutrition, and they took wellness. And, and, the, and the last thing that our good cops, our survivor cops had, is they had a diversity in their life. They loved being cops, but they also loved being Little League coaches. And they also loved being woodworkers. They loved being Harley mechanics. And it was always amazed me to, to see the diversity. So if a traumatic event hit in, in their policing career, they had all these other legs to stand on. What, what I find very traumatic is when we let somebody get into law enforcement, and that level of investment emotionally becomes all-consuming. Then they invest heavily in the policing role, and yet somebody in the administration controls that role, and they can do tremendous emotional harm to police officers and to good police officers. They take someone who's really committed to the canine program, and they jerk the, the canine officer's dog away from them. Or, they, or the, the guy's next up for for the lieutenant on the SWAT team, and they give it to some brown-nosing office pinky who gets the promotion, and the good cop is devastated. But we can't change many of those inequities that the cop faces, but we can 
can change the cop's reaction to those inequities that they have to face. And, and the survivors appear to have understood that. And they had game plans. They went out and they, 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 they were in charge of their life. They never believed the organization was in charge of their life. And so teaching that to our law enforcement personnel throughout the course of their career, I think is, it would be the piece of advice that we gave. You know, when we wrote this book, Emotional Survival, there was no real um, agenda in writing the book. Uh, there was a guy down at the sheriff's office who told me, he said, you need to write a book. I said, I don't, I don't need to write a book. Uh, I'm not a good writer. He said, you, you need to write a book. I said, why? And he goes, because when you die, all this information dies. I said, geez, you're a pleasant sucker. But we wrote the book as an afterthought. And I'm astounded because there are some simple little things that the cops taught us. That book has gone on and sold a few million copies now, because not because it's well-written, but, but, but because it's common sense and the cops react to it. Because it, it, it gives them some information in tangible, specific terms that there's things they can do to improve the quality of their life. And that, that's what, what it's about, the help of the cops who help everybody else. You can contact Dr. Gilmartin at EmotionalSurvival.com. And his book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, A Guide for Officers and Their Families, can be found on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.